Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Tuesday, February 21st, 2023. President Joe Biden says Ukraine will never be a victory for Russia. The president spoke in Warsaw, Poland, one day after his surprise visit to Ukraine's capital, Kiev, and three days before the anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. President Biden saying autocrats only understand one word, no, no, no. No, you will not take my country. No, you will not take my freedom. No, you will not take my future. Russian President Vladimir Putin giving his annual State of the Nation speech in Moscow, again blaming the U.S. and other Western countries for provoking Russia into taking military action in Ukraine. And President Putin announcing that Russia will temporarily suspend participation in the only remaining nuclear weapons treaty between the U.S. and Russia, the one called New START that was signed in 2010. The U.S. Supreme Court hears a case about whether large technology companies can be held liable for third-party content on their platforms. A lawsuit was brought by a family of an American woman killed in an ISIS attack, lawsuit against Google. The claim is that Google's subsidiary YouTube pushed ISIS videos to users through its algorithms, inciting violence. We'll hear some of the oral argument before the justices and talk about this case with Politico's technology reporter Rebecca Kern. EPA Administrator Michael Regan makes his second trip in a week to East Palestine, Ohio, and that recent train derailment that led to a toxic chemical spill, announcing the EPA is ordering the railroad, Norfolk Southern, to clean up at the site and pay all remediation costs. And Congressman David Cicilline, Democrat from Rhode Island, re-elected just a few months ago, announces he'll resign from Congress in June to become president of the Rhode Island Foundation. And we start in Warsaw, Poland. An elaborate welcome ceremony for President Joe Biden. And then a meeting with the Polish president, Andrzej Duda. And then a speech on Ukraine. Associated Press reports that President Biden returning on Tuesday to the Polish castle, where he spoke shortly after the Russian invasion of Ukraine last year, said the war had hardened Western resolve to defend democracy around the world. He warned that there were hard and bitter days ahead, but pledged the U.S. and its allies would have Ukraine's back as the war enters its second year. President Biden's speech came one day after his daring, unannounced trip to Kyiv, where he met with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. That from Associated Press. Here's President Biden. One year into this war, Putin no longer doubts the strength of our coalition, but he still doubts our conviction. He doubts our staying power. He doubts our continued support for Ukraine. He doubts whether NATO can remain unified. But there should be no doubt. Our support for Ukraine will not waver. NATO will not be divided, and we will not tire. (laughs) President Putin's craven lust for land and power will fail. And the Ukrainian people's love for their country will prevail. Democracies of the world will stand guard over freedom today, tomorrow, and forever. So that's that's what's at stake here. Freedom. That's the message I carried to Kyiv yesterday, directly to the people of Ukraine. When President Zelensky said he came to the United States in December, quote, he said, this struggle will define the world and what our children and grandchildren, how they live, and then their children and grandchildren. 
He wasn't only speaking about the children and grandchildren of Ukraine. He was speaking about all of our children and grandchildren, yours and mine. We're seeing again today what the people of Poland and the people across Europe saw for decades. Appetites of the autocrat cannot be appeased. They must be opposed. Autocrats only understand one word, no, no, no. No, you will not take my country. No, you will not take my freedom. No, you will not take my future. And I'll repeat tonight what I said last year in the same place. A dictator bent on rebuilding an empire will never be able to ease the people's love of liberty. Brutality will never grind down the will of the free. And Ukraine, Ukraine will never be a victory for Russia. Never. President Biden in front of the Royal Castle in Warsaw, Poland. The White House press corps saying, the White House press operation saying the crowd included Polish citizens, Ukrainian refugees, embassy staff and children, elected officials of Poland, government and military leaders and White House staff. President Biden in Kiev on Monday announced another $500 million in military aid to Ukraine, including artillery shells, anti-armor systems and air surveillance radars. The United Nations Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights says that since Russia invaded Ukraine just almost a year ago, at least 8,000 civilians have been killed, including nearly 500 children. Another 13,000 civilians have been injured, and 90% of the civilian casualties were due to explosive weapons with wide area effects, including artillery shells, cruise and ballistic missiles, and airstrikes. Also, 14 million people in Ukraine have been displaced from their homes. 18 million people are in urgent need of humanitarian aid. Russian President Vladimir Putin giving his annual State of the Nation address in Moscow and saying what he calls Russia's special military operation in Ukraine was necessary because of NATO expansion and the mistreatment of Russian-speaking citizens in the Donbass region in eastern Ukraine. We're not at war with the people of Ukraine. This is something I've said many times. The people of Ukraine are no hostages to the Kyiv regime and their Western masters who have effectively occupied the country in a political, military and economic sense. The West is using Ukraine as a tool, as a testing ground and as a launch pad against us. One thing should be clear. The more, the more long-range weapons are sent to Ukraine, the longer we will have to push the threat away from our borders. Russian President Vladimir Putin in Moscow through an interpreter. His speech ran almost two hours. He did not say the name Joe Biden once. In contrast, President Biden, speaking in Warsaw, Poland, said the name Vladimir Putin ten times in a 20-minute speech. President Putin also declaring today that Russia is suspending its participation in the New START Treaty, the only current nuclear weapons treaty in effect between the U.S. and Russia. START stands for Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty. CBS News reports that the New START Treaty signed in 2010 by U.S. President Barack Obama and Russian President Dmitry Medvedev limits each country to no more than 1,550 deployed nuclear warheads and 700 deployed missiles and bombers. The agreement envisages sweeping on-site inspections to verify compliance. 
Just days before the treaty was due to expire in February 2021, Russia and the United States agreed to extend it for another five years. More on this in President Putin's speech today. They're saying there is no connection between uh, between conflict in Ukraine and other hostile actions of the West and their statements that they would like to inflict a strategic defeat on us. This is a this is the uh, either they are very cynical, uh, ultimately cynical, or or uh, stupid. It looks like they're not stupid. Uh, they are aiming to inflict a strategic defeat. So this uh, statement that Russia is uh, is uh, halting, putting a stop on its participation in the strategic weapons control agreement. I would like to reiterate, we're not exiting the agreement. We are uh, putting a, a halt on it. Before we come back to the discussion of this, we need to understand what France and the UK are trying to do and how we are going to take into account their strategic arsenals. So their cumulative uh, striking potential. So their statement if effectively is the application to enter this agreement. Okay, fine. And you should not try to lie to everyone. We know all the, the backstory to this. We know that all the um, separate uh, types of uh, nuclear weapons are coming to their expiry and we know that they are thinking about testing their nuclear weapons, including the fact that in the US they are developing new types of nuclear weapons, and we have this information. And in this relation, R Russia has to ensure uh, Russia has to ensure the readiness of the Russian nuclear potential. Of course, we're not going to strike first. And nobody has to have dangerous illusions that uh, this uh, global strategic parity can be destroyed. Russian President Vladimir Putin, through an interpreter, big speech today in Moscow, his State of the Nation address. More from the CBS News article on that speech and his announcement about pulling out of this nuclear weapons treaty. Russia and the U.S. have suspended mutual inspections under the new START since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, but Moscow last fall refused to allow their resumption raising uncertainty about the pact's future. Russia also indefinitely postponed a planned round of consultations under the treaty. Those moves prompted the U.S. to accuse Russia of noncompliance with the pact as recently as January. President Putin argued that while the U.S. has pushed for the resumption of inspections of Russian nuclear facilities under the treaty, NATO allies had helped Ukraine mount drone attacks on Russian air bases, hosting nuclear-capable strategic bombers. That from CBS News. Reaction to the Russian suspension of the New START treaty, Secretary of State Antony Blinken spoke with reporters in Athens, Greece. The announcement by uh, Russia that it's uh, suspending participation in the New START is deeply unfortunate and irresponsible. Uh, we'll be watching carefully 
to see what uh, Russia actually does. We'll, of course, make sure that in any event we are postured appropriately for the security of our own country and, and, and that of our allies. Secretary of State Antony Blinken in Athens, that audio from MSNBC. This story from BBC News, all figures for nuclear weapons are estimates, but according to the Federation of American Scientists, Russia has 5,977 nuclear warheads, the devices that trigger a nuclear explosion, though this includes about 1,500 that are retired and set to be dismantled. Of the remaining 4,500 or so, most are considered strategic nuclear weapons, ballistic missiles or rockets, which can be targeted over long distances. These are the weapons usually associated with nuclear war. That from BBC. The Federation of American Scientists says the U.S. has 5,428 nuclear warheads. You combine that with France's 290 and United Kingdom's 225, it's about the same as Russia's total. NATO Secretary General Jan Stoltenberg asked today about Russia's withdrawal from the New START Treaty. He was at a news conference at NATO headquarters in Brussels, Belgium. James Bayes from Al Jazeera. Um, Secretary General, on New START, can you tell us how worried should we all be? Does it make the world a more dangerous place now? More nuclear weapons and uh, uh, less arms control makes the world more dangerous. And that's the reason why in NATO we have worked so hard uh, to um, engage Russia uh, on issues related to arms control and why NATO allies have supported the new start. Uh, And also why I'm calling on Russia uh, today to reconsider its uh, decision to suspend its participation in the new START agreement. We have to remember that this is uh, one of the last major arms control agreements we have. Uh, after uh, Russia started to violate the agreement that uh, uh, banned all the intermediate-range weapons, the INF Treaty, uh, that led to the demise of that uh, uh, treaty a few years ago. Uh, Now they are suspending the other big nuclear uh, arms control treaty, uh, the new START, which regulates, put limits on the total number of long-range strategic uh, weapons. So, uh, So this is just another example that we are moving away from uh, uh, the arms control architecture, the international rules-based order. We have uh, used decades to build step by step an agreement by uh, an agreement. So the combination of Russia violating some of these agreements, um, leading to the demise of the INF Treaty, and then walking away from uh, the new start, uh, makes the world more dangerous and just highlights the importance of Uh, that we stand together, uh, all those countries that believe in the rules-based international order and believes in freedom and uh, democracy. The NATO Secretary General Jan Stoltenberg at a joint news conference at NATO headquarters in Brussels, Belgium, with officials from Ukraine and the European Union. This is Washington Today. This from Reuters. United States and its allies will impose new sanctions this week to crack down on Russia's efforts to evade sanctions and export controls aimed at forcing Moscow to end its war in Ukraine, Deputy Treasury Secretary Wally Adeyamo said on Tuesday. He said a coalition of more than 30 countries would crack down on Russia's purchases of dual-use goods like refrigerators to secure semiconductors needed for its military. The sanctions would also seek to do more to stem the transshipment of oil and other restricted goods through bordering countries, though we did not give details. The deputy secretary spoke at the Council on Foreign Relations in Washington, D.C., and he also said that the sanctions over the past year have had a measurable effect on Russia's ability to wage war in Ukraine. One year on, our economic tools are constraining the Kremlin. 
are sanctions and export controls implemented in partnership with the Department of Commerce have degraded Russia's ability to replace more than 9,000 pieces of military equipment lost since the start of the war, forced production shutdowns at key defense facilities, and caused shortages of essential materials and components for tanks and aircraft production. Russia is also running out of ammunition and has lost as much as 50% of its tanks. At the same time, our coalition has provided Ukraine with state-of-the-art military equipment, helping them to run faster as we force Russia to go slower. And Russia today is forced to turn to mothballed Soviet-era weapons to fight its war of aggression. Going forward, our export controls and sanctions will continue to prevent Russia from accessing the equipment it needs to make up for these losses. And our sanctions will make it harder for the Kremlin to use the remaining resources Russia can access to pay for the weapons they need. While Russia's economic data appears to be better than many expected, our actions are forcing the Kremlin to use its limited resources to prop up its economy at a time where they would rather be investing every dollar in their war machine. Deputy Treasury Secretary Wally Adeyamo at the Council on Foreign Relations in Washington, D.C., Russia's economy contracted last year by 2.1 percent, according to the Russian government figures. But that's less than some international analysts had predicted. Some had seen the Russian economy shrinking over 10 percent as the sanctions kicked in. Ukraine's ambassador to the United States, Oksana Markarova, has been a familiar sight on TV in the U.S., doing interviews and forums She was even a guest of the First Lady at the State of the Union Address a couple of weeks ago. Today, she was part of a Hudson Institute discussion on the war in Ukraine, making the case for more aid and weapons to be sent to her country. An audience member asked whether Russia should pay Ukraine for the suffering it has caused and to rebuild when the war is over. I'm Peter Huffey, an intelligence analyst, a former diplomat. I can't even conceive of this ending without uh, a major program for reparations. And I'm wondering if the world is looking at perhaps a tax on Russian energy for the next 20 years to make that happen. And without reparations, this, this, this can never end. New people need to be compensated for what's being done. Amen. You know, I can only agree with, with this uh, question, which is not really a question, but something that we work really actively on. So uh, 50 or more percent of our energy system is destroyed. Some of the cities literally no longer exist. You know, the city of Mariupol has 90 percent of the buildings destroyed and Russians still control that city. City of Kharkiv, you know, uh, it's, it's tens of thousands of buildings, some of them of the historical cultural heritage, some institutions that were not even destroyed by the Nazi Germany during the World War II. The destruction is huge. The losses of, of, of people are huge. So the reconstruction is going to be massive, and the compensation is something that uh, is an important part of justice as well. Now, there are several sources as we look at how this could be compensated and what resources could we use in order to, to rebuild the country and, and have this compensation mechanism. First is... Uh, you know, the assets that are sanctioned and seized abroad, including the Russian sovereign asset, 
It's a difficult discussion, but it's a discussion we are holding in a number of capitals since 24th of February. And I believe if we all join forces together, this could lead to a, a very plausible result, because this is the money of either Russian Federation or people directly responsible for this. And they should be seized and they should be provided to Ukraine. And there is a possibility even uh, after the omnibus has been adopted, and there was the Lindsey Graham uh, uh, law on uh, uh, inside that uh, that actually allowed already the prosecutor general with his decision to, to transfer uh, confiscated assets to the Department of State and Department of State can give it to Ukraine already. So we already have the first 5.4 million that has been uh, confiscated and is going through that process. But of course, I mean, the scale of what is needed is much more. Of course, the reparation is something that we are, we think it would be a just thing to discuss, but it requires us to win the war and Russia to be defeated in order to even approach those discussions. So, um, absolutely. And third, within all the three criminal proceedings that we have in the criminal, uh, International Criminal Court, International Court of Justice, and uh, European Court of Human Rights, as well as future tribunal, the end result of all of these decisions could also and should also lead to uh, you know, reparations, confiscations, and uh, and the material aspect of Russia also paying for what they have done. So absolutely, yes. Ukraine's ambassador to the United States, Oksana Makarova, at the Hudson Institute in Washington, D.C. Ukraine says that as President Putin was giving his State of the Nation speech in Moscow today, blaming Western countries for starting and escalating the fighting in Ukraine, Russian missile, missile strikes in the southern Ukrainian city of Kyrgyzstan killed at least six people and wounded another dozen. And Ukraine has told schools to hold classes remotely tomorrow through Friday because of the risk of Russian missile strikes around the anniversary of Russia's invasion. Washington Today continues in a moment. Welcome back to Washington Today, available as a podcast, wherever you get your podcast on the C-SPAN Now mobile app. Some other headlines today, this from TheHill.com. House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, Democrat from New York, slammed Republicans providing Fox News with footage from the January 6, 2021 insurrection as an egregious security breach. Congressman Jeffries, in a letter to his Democratic colleagues in the House, saying officials are trying to confirm the precise nature of the transfer of the videos from the attack. The letter came after reports surfaced that House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican from California, provided Tucker Carlson and his team access to 41,000 hours of surveillance footage from the U.S. Capitol around the time that the riot happened. From USA Today, the Biden administration announced a new policy proposal that would limit access to asylum for migrants who cross the United States southern border illegally if they fail to apply for protections in another country. It's set to go into place as Title 42 ends in an effort to curb illegal migration. This story from Politico.com this morning. Tech companies are bracing for the United States Supreme Court to hear one of the most consequential cases facing the trillion-dollar industry to date, a ruling that could potentially make them liable for the recommendation of harmful content on their platforms. The case, Gonzalez v. Google, seeks to hold Google's YouTube liable for the death of a woman killed in the 2015 terrorist attack. Her family is suing the company for recommending ISIS videos used to recruit potential terrorists for attacks around the world and contending that a federal liability shield for tech platforms doesn't protect the YouTube's use of algorithms to recommend content. 
At the heart of the case, the court will take its first look at Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, a law passed in 1996 that gives Internet providers and similar companies legal protections for hosting most posts from users, as well as moderating and removing such content. That from Politico. And coming up in a few minutes, we'll talk with the reporter who wrote that story. But first, some of today's oral argument. Chief Justice John Roberts questioning Eric Schnapper, attorney for the Gonzalez family. Your friend on the other side presented an analogy um, uh, that she thought would be helpful, which a a bookseller uh, that has a table uh, uh, with sports books on it, and somebody comes in and says, I'm looking for the book about Roger Maris, uh, and the bookseller says, well, it's over there on the table with the other sports books. Isn't that analogous to what's happening here? You type in I'm not sure, I'm not sure where that, that gets us. I mean, it wouldn't be any different than Well, we'll figure out where we get it. It gets that. us in a minute. But I just want to know if you think that's a good, uh, a good analogy. I... I'm a little concerned to know where it's taking me. Um, it's, a, it's an analogy of it's an analogy of sorts. That's what we call, call questions. I I mean, I'm gonna, at some point, I'm going to go yes, but you still have to fit it within the four walls of the statute. Uh, perhaps you could you could tell me what lies ahead. I think I could. I mean, sure, it's an analogy of sorts. But, but, but what lies what ahead is I give up. Your to? Yes, yes. Yeah. But, no, what lies ahead is the idea that uh, you could look at that and say it's not. Uh, uh, pitching something in particular to the person who's made the request. It is recognizing that it's a request about a particular subject matter, and it's there on the table, and they might want to look at that or they may not want to look at it. But it's really just a uh, uh, 21st century version of what has taken place for a long time in many contexts, which when you ask a question, people are putting together a group of things, not necessarily precisely answering your question. I mean, if somebody says... Yes, no, I, 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 yeah. all right, I think, I think I know where we're going here. Um, the, uh, um, insofar as uh, I, I go to YouTube and I say, show me a cat, you know, it's a more complicated than this, but show me, show me, tell me what cat videos you have, and they're responding to that. Um, they're, um, uh, sure, that's an easy case. It's, it's, they give you a bunch of cat videos. You don't have any complaint about something like that. In this case, if they put in something, say, show me ISIS videos, they would get a bunch of ISIS videos, and you don't have any objection to that, given the way the search was phrased. It, it, I have to answer that with precision. If I say, play for me an ISIS video, and they just directly play the video, then what they've done falls within the language of the statute. It's requested, it's purely third-party content, and I would try and be, hold, trying to be holding them liable for displaying that content. But what actually has happened, and this is maybe analogous to what goes on to some extent at Twitter, where they might actually literally just show you the thing. But what's happening at YouTube is they're not doing that. I type in uh, ISIS video, and they're gonna be a catalog of thumbnails which they created. Uh, It's as if I went into the bookstore and said, um, I'm interested in sports books, and they said, we've got this catalog which we wrote of sports books, sports books we have here, and handed that to me. They created that content, and, and, and if you publish content you've created, you're not within the four walls of the statute. So but a lot of not, exactly not, things. Under your theory, they would not be liable for the content of the books. They'd be but liable for the, for the but, catalog? But providing the catalog. Okay, thank you. 
Chief Justice John Roberts questioning attorney for the Gonzalez family, Eric Schnapper, at the oral argument in the case Gonzalez v. Google. Later in the oral argument, Google attorney Lisa Blatt got these questions from Justice Elena Kagan. We're in a predicament here, right, because this is a statute that was written at a different time when the Internet was completely different. But the problem that the statute is um, uh, trying to address is you're being held responsible for what is another person's defamatory remark. Now, in my example, you're not being held responsible for another person's defamatory remark. You're being held responsible for your choice in broadcasting that defamatory remark to millions and millions of people who wouldn't have seen it otherwise through this pro-defamatory algorithm. And the question is, you know, should 230 really be taken to go that far? The question is, can you carve out pro-defamatory as as opposed to pro-anything else, pro-some other type of content that someone may be suing over, over negligence? If I can just give you an example of a TV channel, when you broadcast an excessively violent TV channel, you're giving it a new audience that they wouldn't otherwise have. It's still inherent to publishing. And if you decide to run reruns of the most sexually explicit and violently explicit, you could say that's a bad thing, and it may be. But on your choice, uh, but, it, but it would be protected under 230. In terms of what was happening in 1996, I strongly disagree with the notion that algorithms weren't present based on targeted recommendations. The Center for Democracy and um, uh, Technology has this wonderful history lesson of what was happening in 92 through 94 on how targeted recommendations developed. And you had something called news groups, which were, for anyone using the internet, that was sort of what people did. They signed up for a news group, and those news groups adopted the technology that is the technology that is alleged in this case. They looked at what the user was looking at, say the user was looking at science news, and they thought, oh, that also user is looking at some other kind of news, maybe on psychology or something. And so they would make recommendations based on your user history and that of others. Amazon, Two months into 1997, introduced its famous feature as if you buy X, you might like Y, based on that technology. So this technology was present starting in 92. And 92 through 96, the internet was definitely different, but it was kind of a mess. You still had to organize it. So there were search engines. There was um, all kinds of features that were organizing content because even then it was massive. It's just now on like an exponentially greater scale. Lisa Blatt, attorney for Google, questioned by Justice Elena Kagan. With more on today's Supreme Court oral argument in the case of Google v. Gonzalez, we're joined on the phone by Rebecca Kern, Politico's technology policy reporter. She was in the courtroom today. What did you take away from the justice questioning about the future of technology company legal liability? Yeah, it was actually a surprising outcome today. We um, went into this these oral arguments in this case, um, Gonzalez v. Google, where a family has sued Google over um, what they claim is their person of ISIS uh, terrorist videos and recruitment videos on their on their platform. On on it, they own YouTube. So on YouTube. Their dirt was unfortunately the victim of an ISIS attack in 2015. So that this is a this is their approach of suing Google for recommending these videos on on ISIS content. Um, we went into this, these arguments today really not knowing how the court would land on this. They've never taken up this um, law. It's called Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. 
it's been in existence since 1996, and it's the first time it's hit the Supreme Court. Um, we knew conservative Justice Clarence Thomas had been asking to review this law. He has felt it is too broad, and it gives um, a, a very broad liability shield, meaning they can't be sued for most third party that they host. Um, but today, we really heard this kind of question whether whether they do need to, to take an axe, you know, take an axe to the law. He he didn't seem to indicate was really the issue he maybe wanted here today. Um, and where we did see some justices come out, it works that I didn't expect it at least, is Katanji Brown Jackson um, was the most cold justice, a, a liberal justice um, pointed by. Uh, presiding and was critical of of the tech shield. So that that was kind of a reversal I didn't expect. You said this is the the first time the Supreme Court has taken the case. What does it say that they took the case but don't seem ready to make a a big ruling on it? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Million dollar question. I have asked a lot of tech legal scholars and they really did not expect to be the case they they've had other section 230 cases um appealed before them and and they have not had cert so um i don't know um they may be wanting to make a more narrow ruling comes to terrorist content promoted on the platform could be uh what they're trying to go after um, because, but the broader quest for the court um, could, according to Google and a lot of companies, be disastrous for the Internet. Uh, the question they're being asked in the case is whether invasion algorithms like the um, for you, say, on TikTok or the up next on YouTube where you watch one video and they recommend another one, that they are asking whether the live shield covers those types of recommendations because they're not tech third party content. That is content coming from the platform. They're recommending this. They're prioritizing this. Um, so we went into the day thinking, are they really going to get rid of all of that? Like that, that would make these websites somewhat inoperable if, if it only could be, say, reverse chronological order. They couldn't make any recommendation to you, any prioritization. So that's what a lot of the companies going in are like, oh, gosh, this could be really bad. If they if they go that direction, but but asking today's questionings from both liberal and conservative justices, they didn't seem to want to take as broad of a, a cut law, and um, didn't seem to want to even throw algorithms because they seem to understand this is how how it is served and organized on the internet, and if it was taken away, it wouldn't be a very useful. None of us would be very useful. So. Um, it's really interesting how they'll, they'll rule, because at least one did vote to grant cert, to grant the case, so at least wanted to hear it. But but it didn't necessarily mean wanted to totally redo the, redo the law, I guess. We're talking with Rebecca Kern, a Politico technology policy reporter. We heard from three attorneys today, one for the Gonzalez family and one for Google. The third one representing the Justice Department what side, what arguments did the Biden administration make? That was interesting. Um, 
they shared the time, uh, the Google, or not, sorry, with the Gonzalez family, um, they seem to also argue in a more narrow sense that recommendation algorithms are maybe not speed limited by companies, but it is conduct that they are taking and that they should have some ability for that because um, Section 230, it's a pretty in the weeds law, but um, there are two parts of it. And the first part um, immunizes platforms for home content and says they aren't publishers. If they take um, measures to ensure certain of content isn't on on the plot, and um, it's, it's kind of a good Samaritan policy built into the law, that if you at least make effort to remove content, we won't view this shield. Um, but but it seems that the DOJ still thinks lending content is still a more active stance than just hosting content. Um, it's a little unclear how just will rule um, in this case based on the DA, uh, the Biden administration's arguments, they wanted to be kicked back to the lower market court to review this one again about the use of targeted algorithms. Um, that seems to be the direction they're taking. So it does seem to be um, with the Gonzalez family. You can find Rebecca Kern's articles at Politico.com. She's a technology policy reporter. And on Twitter, it's at Rebecca M. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And you can find the full oral argument in today's case at our website, cspan.org. There was a funny moment when Justice Elena Kagan joked about the Supreme Court justices' lack of internet savviness. Every other industry has to internalize the costs of his conduct. Why is it that the tech industry gets a pass? A little bit unclear. On the other hand, I mean, we're a court. We really don't know about these things. You know, these are not like the nine greatest experts on the Internet. (laughs) Justice Elena Kagan. On Wednesday, there is another Supreme Court oral argument in a related case, Twitter v. Tenma. You can listen live at 10 a.m. Eastern asking the question whether Twitter can be held liable for terrorism-related content posted by users. That's Wednesday, live at 10 a.m. Eastern. Environmental Protection Agency Administrator Michael Regan says the EPA is ordering Norfolk Southern Railroad to clean up and pay remediation costs after the train derailment toxic chemical spill and fire in East Palestine, Ohio. Since that disaster February 3rd, the Freight Rail Company has been voluntarily doing the cleanup, and Ohio government has overseen the response. Administrator Regan was at a news conference today in East Palestine. I recognize that no matter how much data we collect or provide, it will not be enough to completely reassure everybody. It may not be enough to restore the sense of safety and security that this community once had, but we're going to work together day by day for as long as it takes to make sure that this community feels at home once again. This is my second time here visiting East Palestine. And coming from Eastern North Carolina, I can tell you firsthand it's communities like this that represent the backbone of this country. As I told Ms. Caroline Brown and Mr. Andres Balputnis, whom I had the privilege of meeting with earlier today, we're not gonna leave this community behind. 
We're, going, we're not going to leave this community to manage this aftermath alone. We are with you. Just as we did through the emergency response phase, EPA is going to continue to support this community throughout the cleanup phase, and we're going to do so by continuing to work hand-in-hand hand with our state, local, and federal partners. EPA Administrator Michael Regan in East Palestine, Ohio. Today, a news conference that also included Ohio's Governor Mike DeWine and Congressman from the area Bill Johnson, both Republicans, and Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro, a Democrat. The effects of the spill also reaching Beaver County, Pennsylvania, across the state line. E&E Greenwire has an article that has this. EPA and state officials repeatedly reported no chemicals have shown up in water, soil, or at-home air quality tests, but residents counter that rash breakouts, sick cattle, and other unusual health implications have arisen since the derailment. And scientists from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention are on the ground in East Palestine, and a Health and Human Services-run health assessment site has been set up in the city where residents concerned about symptoms can be evaluated. More from the EPA Administrator. Today I'm announcing that EPA is ordering Norfolk Southern to conduct all necessary actions associated with the cleanup from the East Palestine train derailment. Using EPA's legal authorities, I am ordering Norfolk Southern to do the following. Norfolk Southern will clean up all contamination in soil and water and safely transport that contamination to the appropriate locations to ensure that residents are not impacted further. From the debris and the chemicals you see in the waterways to the soil in and around the crash site. This work will be done to EPA specifications. Norfolk Southern will reimburse EPA for cleaning services that will be offered to all residents and businesses within the radius to provide an additional layer of reassurance, peace of mind. Those services will be conducted by EPA staff and contractors who have extensive expertise in conducting these types of cleanings. And Norfolk Southern will attend and participate in public meetings at EPA's request and share information with the public. Full transparency is the only option. And to ensure that this is done in a way that leaves this community whole again, EPA will review and approve Norfolk Southern's work plan with state and local government input. The work plan will outline every single necessary step to clean up the environmental damage caused by the derailment. And I can assure you, no details will be overlooked. If the company fails to complete any action ordered by EPA, the agency will immediately step in, conduct the work ourselves, and then force Norfolk Southern to pay triple in cost accordance to the powers granted by my agency. EPA Administrator Michael Regan at a news conference today, East Palestine, Ohio. On Wall Street, the Dow down 697, NASDAQ down 294, S&P down 81. Congressman David Cicilline, Democrat from Rhode Island, announcing today that he'll be resigning effective June 1st to become president of the Rhode Island Foundation. He's been in Congress since 2011, and he talked about his decision today with W. J-A-R-T-V in Providence. I was not intending to leave. I just ran and was reelected. And 
um, I was contacted by the search firm leading the search for the presidency of the Ram Foundation and began a series of discussions. And, you know, during those conversations, it became clear to me that the Ram Foundation is a place where, you know, they are working on kind of three principal issues, making sure Rhode Islanders have access to high-quality, affordable health care, making sure that we create real economic opportunities for all Rhode Islanders, and making sure that we're doing all we can to improve the quality of public education to give young people a chance. And I thought, those are all the things I have worked on for 30 years as an elected official, but this was an opportunity to kind of build upon that work and and, and be in a position to not only bring the Rhode Island Foundation to the next level, but to build upon the work that I've done for 30 years and to take all that knowledge and all those relationships and leverage them to the benefit of Rhode Island. And so, you know, I ran for public office in my first time and for every office I've ever run for, for one reason, to do everything I could to make life better for Rhode Islanders. And I think in this new position, I can do that um, with great confidence that I'm going to be able to really make a difference. And when I compare that to kind of the next few years in the House under Republican leadership, where I don't think a lot will get done, unfortunately, I saw this as an opportunity where I could make the most difference for the state that I love. And so I was persuaded. Uh, they voted this morning to formally offer me this position, and I accepted. Congressman David Cicilline. Democrat from Rhode Island, an interview today with WJR-TV in Providence. His resignation becomes effective June 1st, he says. CNN reports that the 1st Congressional District of Rhode Island is a Democratic stronghold, with David Cicilline winning by almost 30 points in his last midterm election, and that there'll be a special election held to determine who fills the seat. Thanks for listening to Washington Today. Sign up for C-SPAN's evening newsletter word for word to get the stories Washington is talking about sent to your inbox every day. Subscribe at c-span.org forward slash connect. Have a good night. Next, four conversations from C-SPAN series of over 40 interviews with new members of the 118th Congress. C-SPAN spoke with the new members about their upbringings, careers, and political philosophies. Democrat Morgan McGarvey is one of nearly 80 new U.S. House members in the 118th Congress. The father of three told C-SPAN about his political philosophy, how he's balancing time between Washington and Kentucky, and about his family's prominent role in a multi-decade National Geographic project documenting their lives. This is kind of one of those wild, one-of-a-kind stories uh, that, that I was born into. Um, but the, the Louisville paper used to be owned by a family who really invested in journalism, really invested in photographers and writers. A lot of talent was coming through the Louisville Courier Journal, Louisville Times. And back in the 70s, when birth photos were all the rage, there was a young photographer named Pam Spaulding who said, you know, Birth is cool and exciting, but it's really bringing that child home that changes a family and, and what life looks like on a day-to-day basis. So she went to several families in the area and said, can I do a photo essay story on you for a full year of bringing your child home? Everybody turned her down. So then she gets to my mom and dad, uh, who were pregnant with my older brother at the time. And my dad had worked his way through college and law school in Lexington as a television reporter. And so she said, can I follow you guys for one month? And he just felt like he couldn't say no. So they did it for one month, then they did the story for a year, and then she kept coming around. And now 46 years later, uh, she is still documenting 
our family, and it's not about us, it's about life. Um, 30 years in, National Geographic released a book. It was the first time we'd seen any of the pictures. We still don't see the pictures, we don't get them. Uh, it's very much in her vision, shooting the everyday and the ordinary so that 100 years from now, people will say, this is what it looks like when a family ate at McDonald's. This is, this is what type of car they drove. I mean, even think about, in my lifetime, going from landline phones to cell phones and what that looks like just in the everyday life. And so it's a one-of-a-kind project. I don't think anyone has done a project of that scope or that type before. And it is, it's kind of wild and it's certainly an icebreaker in conversation. Um, people say, tell me, tell me something about yourself that, that we might not know. So she's following your family yeah. around. And how often is she with your family? And tell us about your kids. Yeah, so, so most of the time she really focuses on the ordinary. Uh, she will come over and she'll photograph us in the chaos of the morning, you know, trying to get one ready for preschool, two ready for elementary school. My wife works full time. I might be running for office and, and what that sort of looks like and the, and the chaos. Uh, she comes around for the holidays. She comes around for things like that. And then, of course, when something big happens, she was in D.C. Uh, for the infamous first week of this session where uh, certainly she got more of a story than, than probably she thought, but it's here for the big moments, but really focuses, I think, on the little things. And again, we don't see the pictures, which I think people find interesting. I'll not see a single picture from when she was in Washington, D.C., but uh, I hope that at some point, you know, her work, again, probably after I'm, I'm gone, uh, is recognized for just the, the historical document. I think it'll, it'll tell. How old are your kids and what do they think about National Geographic documenting your lives. Yeah, so um, we have twins who are in the fifth grade, and then we have a four-year-old, and they just—they've never seen the pictures. They've—they've they've never seen any of her work. She's just kind of been around. Of course, she's been around for so long. They just accept her as part of the family, and so when she shows up, they'll go, "Oh, there's Pam," and that's—that's that's it. They don't—they don't give it a second thought. What do the kids think about having their dad in Congress? Yeah, um, it was really interesting. So I, I started in the state Senate and have been in the state Senate. I ran for the state Senate after the twins have been home from the hospital for about four months. And so they kind of grew up in Frankfurt and going to the state capitol. It, it really took a little bit of explaining to understand how this is different. Uh, in fact, when we came up for freshman orientation, you know, we'd been gone, it's the longest we'd ever been away from the kids. So we went down to the gift shop and we bought them little t-shirts with the House of Representatives logo on it. And we brought them home and they just couldn't care less. Oh, great, thanks for the t-shirt, mom and dad, uh, fantastic. Then after we brought them up here for the swearing in and they got to see the Capitol and they got to see you know, the hustle and bustle of Washington, the monuments, they don't take those t-shirts off now. Uh, they sleep in them every night, they wear them out on the weekends. And so um, I think now they think it's a really cool thing and they're starting to understand um, how awesome it is to be in Washington. You have three little kids, your wife works full time. Mm -hmm. How are you balancing Washington and home? I don't know if we are successfully balancing it right now. We're, we're doing the best we can. Uh, we're a couple of weeks in, and so you know, we certainly are scheduling FaceTimes with the kids, and uh, communication helps so much. Um, and then, of course, trying to, to find ways to block time when I am home to make sure that we have some hours where it's just the family or you know, that I, I get to take them to school or I get to pick them up from a sporting event at night and work around the schedule. You majored in journalism. Mm -hmm. How come? What, in, what was your interest in journalism? Yeah, when I, when I went to college, I went to the University of Missouri to major in journalism. Um, that's how I wanted to change the world. I still believe in the power of the press, in the power of journalists to tell a story, to tell someone's story, to, to monitor what's going on. It was actually at the University of Missouri where I became a television reporter for the NBC affiliate out there, KOMU NBC8, which is owned by the university. 
and during that time was when all of the Bush v. Gore stuff was going on. And then, I don't know if, if, if you will remember, there were, there were two famous Missouri politicians, a guy named Mel Carnahan, who was the sitting governor running against the sitting U.S. Senator John Ashcroft at the time. Uh, governor Carnahan's plane crashed and he, he unfortunately passed away a few weeks before the election. He had to remain on the ballot. Then the governor said, I'll appoint his wife big national news story and there I am as a junior in college it's happening in our backyard as I'm a journalism major at Missouri covering it and that's actually how I started to get interested in politics is uh, covering the state capitol in Jefferson City Missouri covering big events like that and saying you know I really I'm very interested in what's on the other side of the camera and the change they're making as policy makers instead of what we're doing covering the change that they're making. Where does your political philosophy come from? Yeah you know I think that in in life, um, not just in politics, we're judged by how we treat others, by how we treat those on the margins, by standing up and making sure that everybody has a voice, that everybody has a say. I think that kind of grounds me in the core of what I see as government service. It's it's going and standing up and really truly fighting for the people you represent, fighting for what you believe is right, but also not losing the sense of why we're here, right? To fight for people, but also to get things done. Who taught you that? You know, I, I don't know. Um, I think, you know, my, my parents have really strong values and, and raised us all with a really strong value system and maybe an eye towards public service. My brother is still active duty military. Uh, my sister is a teacher, now a counselor in a public school system in Kentucky. Uh, I've been in the state Senate and now doing this. So, you know, I know people haven't asked me who, who taught me this, but, you know, in looking back, maybe it's not an accident, <clears throat> excuse me, Maybe it's not an accident that all three of us ended up in public service. Republican Keith Selp represents the 3rd Congressional District of Texas in the 118th Congress and is one of its nearly 80 new House members. He told C-SPAN about the influence his parents had in shaping his conservative values, lessons learned from his failed House campaign from 20 years ago, and the significance of the military pins he wears beside his congressional pin on the House floor. Those are my master parachutist wings from the U.S. Army. I had about a decade in airborne infantry and special forces units, and uh, very proud to wear that in Congress. And what is a parachuter? I'm sorry? What is a parachuter? What did you do? Uh, jumping out of an airplane is more fun than the law allows. <laughs> so I served in uh, airborne infantry units with the 82nd Airborne Division and I was a detachment commander and a company commander in Special Forces with the 10th Special Forces. What do you think it says about you that that's the type of military career that you pursued? I love adventure. Real simple. And tell us about some of the adventures you had. Oh, goodness. Uh, uh, it's just a lot of fun, all the way from small DZ, small drop zones with Special Forces into the large drop zones at Fort Bragg. Um, uh, exercises are fun, and uh, it's, it's just a fun way to get to work. You were deployed in many different areas, correct? How many di different parts of the country, or the world did you see? Well, deployments or combat deployments are into combat zones. So that would have been uh, Grenada, Bosnia, Afghanistan, and Qatar for uh, Iraqi freedom. Uh, I also served overseas uh, for another uh, decade. Uh, in places like the embassy in Cairo, Egypt, uh, the European Command in Stuttgart, Germany, NATO military headquarters in Mons, Belgium, 
and then uh, Central Command for uh, Afghanistan and, and the Gulf. When did you become interested in running for public office? I actually ran uh, for Congress back 20 years ago. In the interim, I served for 12 years as the county judge, which is the elected chief executive, sort of, uh, for a county of about a million people in, in Texas. So you ran 20 years ago. Why did you run then? Why did you run 20 years later? Oh, because I had been in the embassy in Cairo, and I saw the Codels come through. And then I, when I was in the Pentagon, I served over in the uh, old executive office building in the White House, spent some time there. I wasn't serving there. And uh, I got to know some congressmen. And frankly, I realized it's not rocket science. Uh, so uh, I thought that you just had to believe something and be able to articulate it. Left, right, really doesn't matter. Believe something, be able to articulate it. Where do your conservative roots come from? Probably my parents. Uh, I think that's uh, my parents and my Christian faith, I think, are the basis for my conservative views. And what did they teach you about conservatism? Oh, oh my goodness. It's the hard work. It's the American dream. It's, uh, it's uh, doing what you want to do and doing it with all your heart. Some of our C-SPAN viewers may recognize you. You were part of history recently at the beginning of this 118th Congress. I you was. One of several Republicans who did not vote for Speaker McCarthy. Can you tell us why? I voted for the rules package. That was the only way we were going to get to the rules package that we have. We have a very strong rules package. And rules determine how Congress acts, how we operate, how, what we do. Uh, so that was my goal, because we need to, to get past the regime of the past, the iron fist that this Congress has been under for the last two years. We need to get to where people like me, I'm not going to be in leadership, I'm not going to be a committee chairman, I'm just going to be a member of Congress. I need to be able to have input. I need to be able to give amendments on the floor. I need to be able to have a say in this greatest legislative body in the world. What committees will you be on? I'll be on Foreign Affairs and Veterans Affairs. And why are you pleased with those two assignments? I think they're two uh, committees that I can contribute to uh, fairly quickly. I look forward to learning because obviously I'm a freshman, uh, but I will learn and I will work hard and I think I can contribute. Democrat Andrea Salinas represents Oregon's 6th Congressional District and is among the 80 new U.S. House members in the 118th Congress. A former state legislator in Oregon, she told C-SPAN about her upbringing in California and how her experience as a first-generation college student influenced her political philosophy. So my philosophy really comes from my upbringing, both, uh, from both my parents, they're both uh, Latinos. One came over from Mexico when he was five and worked in the fields and got a good paying union job after he came back from Vietnam and married my mom. But they really both, both my parents taught me and my sister the value of hard work, but that education and again a good paying union job can really advance a family out of poverty into the middle class. Describe your childhood. So it was a pretty average upbringing. My dad was a San Francisco police officer for 32 years. So I was daughter of law enforcement. Um, you know, I was a hard, hardworking kid who, you know, if I wanted to do anything extra, had to make sure I earned it myself, you know, raking leaves, making sure I, you know, could 
earn my way to summer camp, that sort of thing. And so, yeah, and then really my parents really did kind of encourage education and so went on to become the first in my family to graduate from a four-year university. And that, you went on to the University of California, Berkeley. Yes. What were your four years like there? How did they shape who the person is today? Well, I have to say it really gave me, I think, an appreciation for for issues and problems and looking at things more systemically rather than just kind of my own myopic view of the world. And it opened up like how things are so interrelated, right? And whether that, those are social structures or constructs um, to economic. And so it really made me appreciate that we can't all live in, and look inside our own world. We really have to expand and look, you know, nationwide, globally, to the economic structures and the forces that are shaping people and are preventing people from getting ahead and really, I think, taking advantage of some of those um, American opportunities that we all think we have. What was your major? It started out political science. Everyone just assumes I was a poli-sci major, but I ended up a psychology major. What did you do after you graduated? So my last semester at Cal, and it took me a while, it's, you know, I worked my way through, and so it took me about seven years, but my last semester I worked for Senator Feinstein in her San Francisco district office. I was an intern, and then I decided to take the LSAT. I didn't do as well as I wanted to, so I thought I'll take a year off, but that was 1995, around the Republican Revolution time, so I came out here and tried to find a job on Capitol Hill. I landed finally with Senator Harry Reid's office at his front desk. What did you do then for Mr. Reid? So I did what a lot of staffers do at the front desk. I answered phones, helped with press photos, um, you know, got in there at 7 a.m., sometimes didn't leave till 7 p.m., but it was fun and it was really um, exciting and then moved on to legislative correspondent work until I moved over to the House side and then worked for a member of Congress from California and I did his tax, trade, and social security work on Ways and Means. How did you end up in Oregon then? So I then had a child of my own a few years later, right about 2004, so about yeah, two and a half years after 9-11, and I realized that D.C. had become a really difficult place to raise a child, at least for me, and, so, and I wanted some semblance of normal for my child and to be able to continue to work and be a good mom as well as be a good worker. And so we kind of looked all over the country and found that Oregon just felt so right. It was civically engaged, very active people, and as beautiful, and I will now say more beautiful than California in terms of its landscape and access to the outdoors. So, so what did you do when you moved to Oregon? So I moved to Oregon and truly the day I landed in the airport at PDX, I got a call from Congresswoman Darlene Hooley's office and they were looking for somebody to fill in for a few months. Someone was going on maternity leave and then three months turned into two years until Congresswoman Hooley retired. So I did her district aid work, some energy work as well and environment and small business work. Describe your family. My current family, I have one daughter who is uh, 18 and she's graduating from high school this year. She's uh, looking at colleges right now. My spouse, I, um, I live with my spouse, Chris Ramey. He works for the city of Portland. And I think um, we make a great team, actually, the three of us. I was just talking to some staff and um, yeah, we're getting ready for her to move on to her next step. And hopefully she'll be someplace close enough that we can visit each other every now and then. But yeah, very close family. We love to hike. We, that's why we chose Oregon, love to play games and, you know, just hang out together. My daughter probably less so now that she's a teenager, but yeah. 
you went on to the Legislative Assembly in Oregon. Tell us about your, your career there. Oh, I loved it too. I, I wasn't quite sure. I went from advocacy over to being a member of the legislature and I really focused on health care. I was chair of the House Health Care Committee um, for a couple of years, really tried to pass some good legislation that would bring down the cost of health care, knowing that prices were increasing in so many different areas, whether it was pharmaceuticals or hospital costs or, you know, physician costs, so really tried to wrap my arms around that and brought industry together to work on some of those more pressing problems and was able to, I think, pass some really good legislation. What or who prompted you to run for this seat? So really it was the change in the districts. This is a brand new district, it's the sixth congressional district, and it is the largest Latino population of any of the other um, congressional districts. And I've been part of this community for so many years, and I wanted to make sure that we had a voice, a unique voice that we haven't really historically had. And it's been a more marginalized voice, I think, in Congress. So very excited to represent the, you know, the community that I've been a part of and helped to shape some of the policies previously, and whether that was making sure they were included in um, minimum wage bill or um, passing a farm worker overtime bill, just really helping a community that I think um, can take advantage of the opportunities that my family did as we've have grown. Have you made any new friends in Washington? We have, or I have actually, yeah. So, I mean, I'm really um, excited about our freshman class, and I think um, we are all bonding very well together. So, yeah, a number of my freshman class members, as well as, um, you know, some of those more uh, longer-term longer veterans here have really embraced us and make sure we want it. They, they want to make sure that we succeed. Republican Cory Mills is one of the nearly 80 new U.S. House members in the 118th Congress and one of nearly 100 veterans currently serving on Capitol Hill. The Bronze Star recipient told C-SPAN about how his military service prepared him for Congress and influenced his views on our Constitution and about his childhood in Central Florida. So I was actually born in Winter Haven, Florida, but I grew up in a really tiny town called Auburndale, which is not so small now. So uh, real small town, grew up with my grandparents. Um, my mom and dad, like many families in Central Florida, had issues with substance and drug abuse. And so uh, both of them were in and out of prison for a lot of my life. And so I was adopted by my grandparents and raised and, you know, kind of grew to appreciate that small town feel, but also that nuclear family. Describe your childhood. So, you know, my childhood, you know, in the very beginning was sometimes uh, difficult. Um, you know, bouncing house to house, not having your parents there at all times, kind of being pawned off on friends or relatives. And, you know, it was really my grandparents who kind of was a real blessing. I mean, they stepped in and said, you know, he needs stability. He needs a, uh, a solid home. And that's when they chose to take me in and adopt me. They took me for a summer originally and uh, really enjoyed it and, you know, grew up learning how to hunt and fish and live off the land and you know, just a very traditional kind of central Florida southern family. How do you think that shaped you? Well, I think that, you know, when you experience these types of things, one, you have a choice to make. You can either continue to be a statistic and perpetuate the cycle of, you know, what your family has done before, or you can really make a decision to try and break that cycle to really try and do more, to try and fight for the people. I think that's why I was so driven towards service. I think that was why helping others has always been something that was a really fundamental part of who I am and what makes me who I am. And so I think that whether it's military service, whether it was working with the state or the, the agencies, whether it was uh, building my business, which was there to serve our first responders and our military, or even now serving as a member of Congress, it's just about public service and continuing that servant leadership. Do you remember when you made that conscious decision and was there someone or something that sparked it? You know, 
when I was in high school, playing sports was really a big part. Being a part of a team really mattered, having that camaraderie. And so when I was 16 years old, I'd already made the decision that I was going to go serve in our military. One, I didn't want to shoulder, you know, have my grandparents shoulder the burden of, you know, the cost on college and, you know, continuing to have to struggle through. You know, my grandfather was a welder. My grandmother, she did hair on the weekends, was a stay-at-home mom for, you know, the, the ladies in the community. And so I just felt that I'd been really blessed and it was my time to actually pay it back and to actually give back to the community and give back to the nation. Tell us about your military service. So, was honored to serve in the United States Army. Uh, I'm a U.S. Army combat veteran, had served in the 82nd, uh, worked a little bit in their infantry units as well as for their scout recon units, and was lucky to be blessed and attached to JSOC, CJTF-20, whenever we went into Iraq. Uh, between my military and government service, I've got over seven years in Iraq. I've got almost three years in Afghanistan, in Kosovo, Pakistan. I've been to Somalia and the Puntland areas as well as for uh, even in Ukraine at certain times, uh, was blown up twice by roadside bombs in 2006, and am honored to be a Bronze Star recipient. JSOC, for those that don't know. Uh, Joint Special Operations Command. And what does that mean? What were your responsibilities? So my primary responsibility was actually as a combat team medic. And I was lucky enough to be able to cross train and then just work directly with the teams. It was always one of those things where, you know, you're really out for the mission first. And then that medical background and that experience is really to try and sustain, but only after you've actually mitigated the threats and firefight and achieved the mission. What was the impact of those explosive incidents? I mean, with the incidents, obviously, I mean, it's one of those things that it takes you back for a moment. But it was really about just kind of the muscle memory, the fundamental training that you get. You react without even having to think at that stage. And that's a credit to, you know, the tremendous uh, training and, and, and preparation that our United States Armed Forces get to experience. And so um, it was a great experience, even though it sounds like it's terrible. It really shows you how prepared and how trained you really are. And I think that was a great, you know, understanding of, okay, I am ready. I am supposed to be here. You know, we had three out of the five guys in one of our vehicles that had gotten severely injured and being able to sustain those and prevent loss of life was really an important thing and again a chance to be a part of that team. What was the training that kicked in in one of those incidents? Describe it. Well, I think that, you know, when you're going through trainings, and we do a lot of trainings, whether it is um, react to chaos drills or, you know, react to contact or uh, how we actually incur on an ambush or our, our combat medical training the, for the individual infantrymen, it's their CLS, their combat lifesaver skills. Um, you know, these are all things that immediately kick in, but also identifying and mitigating the threats. You know, making sure that we actually take control of the situation when you're in an ambush, because fire superiority is really the ultimate thing that you have to gain. And so, you know, all of these different trainings that culminate over years and years of service, you know, when that comes into effect and you actually see how it saves lives, that's really a credit to all those before us who develop these types of curriculums. How do you think that's prepared you for Congress? Well, I think that I'm less prepared for Congress than I was for combat, but I would have to say I felt a lot more comfortable probably overseas than I did in here. Why? Um, well, you know, you're always, <clears throat> at least overseas, you kind of have an idea of who your enemy is, right? And who's actually trying to sharpshoot and go after you. Um, I joke around with people all the time and I say, I don't know if I should have worn my body armor more, uh, you know, here in Congress or more overseas. Uh, and it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek military type of uh, 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 banter back and forth with all my military brothers here. But, you know, Congress is one of those areas that if you understand public service, if you understand what that oath truly meant, for a lot of us, we did do our formality where we swore our oath on office. But that oath that we took in uniform never expires. You know, just because you take that uniform off doesn't mean that you don't stop fighting for our constitutionality. It doesn't mean that you don't believe in our freedoms, our rights. You know, America is a very unique country where even a child who was born into a certain socioeconomic class 
that doesn't define them. You know, we're equal opportunity, not equal outcome. And I think that it's really key that if I could be even an example for one child who grew up in a very similar background to what I have, and they see that hard work and opportunity and the ability to continue to serve is something that they want to do and they can do it, you're not limited just by where you grew up. You had a campaign ad where you compared Democrats to Taliban, Al-Qaeda. Do you view Democrats as the enemy? Well, it was more of a reference of mandatory, you know, masking or mandatory things. It's not necessarily, it's basically just trying to say where you have tyrannical and overreach by federal governments or by leadership. You know, for me, the biggest thing is, is that we're supposed to be a nation of freedoms, of rights, of liberties, and that includes medical rights as well. So for me, it was really just trying to explain the fact that one, there's far too much federal government overreach. We too often go into the state and individual rights in violations of our 10th Amendment. And I think that we need to actually, if we truly believe in physical conservatism, if we truly believe in our Constitution, if we truly believe in limited federal government, then we should be striving more for that than taking away the rights and liberties of Americans. When, would, when did you visit Ukraine? So I visited Ukraine uh, in 2015. And so I went over there and helped with just advising and training, you know, not in a government or military, but trying to actually help the people. I mean, these are people who were selling their businesses. Some of them were car salesmen, some of them were farmers. These are people who had no military experience whatsoever, but they believed in protecting their nation and protecting their families. And what we saw in Crimea, what we saw in Donetsk, what we were seeing in Luhansk, these are all things that had atrocious. And back then, they were called red separatists, even though they were the Russian military. You know, back then I tried to explain the fact, and I've written many articles, but I tried to talk about the 1994 Budapest Memorandum, the fact that that had been violated, the fact that the Federation of Russia, the United States, the United Kingdom, Northern Ireland, and Ukraine had all signed this recognizing Ukraine's independent sovereignty, and that was being violated. So I think that the government should have taken a bigger stance in explaining what this international violation was, and we wouldn't have potentially been where we're at now. Can you explain the tie between you being a constitutionalist and your military service? Well, I think that everything about our military service is based on the protection and defense against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And it's really about protecting our inalienable rights. You know, our constitution, our founding fathers really created this so that our God-given rights could not be trampled by tyrannical rule. We didn't want to see what we saw under the rule of England and the rule of the king. And so, you know, when I talk about my military service or what I'm doing right now, what I'm wearing right now is just another extension of my original uniform. And it's still continuing to serve our nation and serve our people. You can find all of our new member interviews at c-span.org.